thank you for joining us for another episode of God, Law, and Liberty with David Fowler, president of the Family Action Council of Tennessee. Every week, we are putting culture, politics, and law on a collision course with the truth of God's Word. And now, here's David. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of God, Law, and Liberty. I'm delighted and honored to have you with me today. Um, Let me make a quick announcement, if I may, before I get into the substance of today's episode. If you are interested in learning more about the foundations of law from a biblical perspective, particularly as it relates to the United States Constitution and some of the things going on in our country, evaluating them in the legal policy area, uh, according to that biblical view of law and the history of law undergirding our nation's founding, I'm going to be doing a little four-week series, probably start in a week or two from now. I'm not sure what time of day it will be. We'll have some folks from around the country that I know are already interested in it, but it'll be a four-week, one-hour Zoom-type meeting, and I'll do a little presentation, um, and then there'll be question and answers and dialogue. It's, it's being hosted by my friend Chris Wong with KingdomCome.io. I encourage you to check that website out. Uh, it, it, it's essentially, uh, think, think of like LinkedIn, but this is a private social network for Christian artists, business owners, and entrepreneurs who want to expand and be part of God's expansion of his kingdom here on this earth. So, if you would be interested in that, please send an email to me at info at FACTN.org. That's info at FACTN.org. We're going to try to limit it to about 15 or 20 people, so there'll be opportunity for a conversation. Those who can stay on after the hour and want to talk, we can certainly do that for some period of time. But let me know if you would be interested in that four-week little series. Now, with that, let me turn to today's, oh, I I guess I would say perhaps concluding episode on this series in which I've been talking about living by the law of faith and the concept of covenants and their importance to our cosmology and to society. You'll recall a couple of weeks ago I mentioned that the United States Supreme Court, even in its abortion decision, Planned Parenthood versus Casey in 1992, referred to our Constitution as a covenant running from one generation to the present generation. So we cannot escape the importance of covenants in our social order, in our cosmology, in the way we think about what God is doing. And in that context, we also have talked the last couple of weeks about God's everlasting covenant, his eternal covenant, the covenant between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit for creation and its recovery from the pollution of sin and how that was worked out over time in the person of Jesus Christ. And we looked last week at scripture verses supporting the ongoing revelation 
of that covenantal purpose in eternity and its final disclosure of that mystery, which is in Christ Jesus, who is our hope of glory. Now, today, I want to talk about one last little bit. Let me put this in a context for you. One, I hope that it is encouraging to all of you, regardless of whether you're working in the field of law and public policy, um, just in whatever it is you're doing, from raising your children to going through school or college to working for somebody. It, It doesn't matter. But if you have any thoughts of providing leadership in the public square, um, I hope today will be particularly important and helpful to you. But in reality, each of us is in some way providing leadership. The mother in her home, raising the children. Um, We provide leadership in in school. Uh, We provide leadership at work. So, um, so this really pertains to all of us. And I, I, I want to begin by quoting something from Gary North's final book called The Biblical Structure of History, The Unfolding of God's Redemptive Purposes. And he makes this statement, maybe you do not want to be a leader. You are a leader anyway. If you're a parent, you're a leader. Parents teach their children. If you make decisions on behalf of others, you're a leader. Basic to all forms of leadership is the knowledge of history. Said so leaders need to know how they got into the positions that they occupy. And he makes another statement regarding the flow of history that I think is very, very important to, to have the big picture that I've been trying to give some details of in the passages from last week. But But he makes this statement. The Bible's unifying themes for history are these. The transition from grace to wrath, followed by the transition from wrath to grace. In other words, Adam in the garden lived under the gracious rule of God, who had uh, wired him, as it says, and I think it's in Ecclesiastes 6.33, God made man straight. He, he wired us to be the, the kinds of creatures we were supposed to be, made in his image, to love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love those that we would produce, first with, with Adam, respect to Eve, and then them to their children, and so on and so forth. And so we went from that state of grace, we could call it, to a state of wrath in the fall, chapter 3. But the promise of the seed in Genesis 3.15, a seed of the woman that would crush the skull of the serpent, well, that was the, the promise and the beginning of the transition from wrath back to grace and being reformed, renewed, remade, actually, in the image of God as we conform to the image of Christ and become what we were intended to be, each of us, as we were intended to be. Now, this knowledge of history is important because, as I said last week, we can become very discouraged And pessimism is the reigning 
eschatology in our day. I want to play a little clip for us as we begin today's episode from last week's podcast that will set the context for today. But if we do our duty according to God's covenant purpose established before time and where that covenant is going, we can be assured of glorious prospects, not just in the time to come, but in this present time. And today you'll hear that. Now, last week... Um, I, I gave some of the scripture verses that, that pertain to these glorious prospects, but today I want to give you the most glorious of prospects that should frame our understanding of what we are to be doing according to God's covenant purposes and why that then provides us a great hope particularly as we labor in this field of law and government and politics that seems to be in such a state of disaster and disarray. The place I want to begin is a scripture verse found in Ephesians chapter 1. It's verses 8 through 10. He has abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known unto us the mystery of his will, You want to know what the will of the Lord is that you might do it? Well, here it is. According to his good pleasure, which he has purposed in himself. In other words, he he didn't get the idea from any counsel by any of us or, or getting our opinions or looking into the future and seeing what was going to happen and then deciding, okay, this is what I'm going to do. He's purposed it in himself because All knowledge of all things is in God who is independent of all things. He has being in himself. He lacks nothing in himself. And here it is. That in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. Now, of this passage, John Owen, the great Puritan theologian, sometimes referred to as the John Calvin, you know, of of England, in his book, Meditations and Discourses on the Glory of Christ, made this observation. The Lord Christ is particularly and eminently glorious in the recapitulation of all things in him after They had been scattered and disordered by sins. This, this recapitulation of all things after they've been scattered by sin, the apostle proposes as the most signal effect of divine wisdom and the sovereign pleasure of God. Now, for those that may not be used to the language of the day, when he says that this is the signal effect Paul is saying this is, this is the signal effect. What he's referring to there is, according to Webster's 1828 Dictionary, meaning eminent, remarkable, memorable, distinguished from what is ordinary. In other words, this is the crowning achievement of all the things that have, have preceded is that, that Christ is gathering together 
the two families, those of the angels in heaven and man on earth. He's, he's joining those families together now, not in a direct dependence on God as it would have been in the garden, but through the mediator, through the person of Jesus Christ, who is the head of all things. Now, not some things, not things unpertaining to government, but all things, as it says in Colossians 1.29, I believe it is. What Owen next says is, to answer all the ends of this new head of God's recollected family, in other words, to achieve this signal purpose of God, from before the foundation of the world. Christ, remember, was slain before the foundation of the world because God dwells in eternity. All things are known to him. He wasn't waiting to see what might happen, right? It says, to, to answer the ends of this purpose, all power in heaven and earth, all fullness of grace and glory is committed unto him. He continues, there is no communication from God, no act of rule toward this family, no supply of virtue, power, grace, or goodness unto angels or men, but what is immediately from this new head whereunto they are gathered. In him they all consist, on him they do depend, upon him they are subject. In their relation unto him doth their peace, union, and agreement among themselves consist this is the recapitulation of all things intended by the apostle. Now, if you'll remember, a couple of weeks ago, we quoted Pink as saying that, again, all the blessings come to us from Christ, who has purchased them with his blood on our behalf, and by the Holy Spirit, distributes, disperses, and applies them to us. And so, we are never independent of God. Now, here's where this becomes important. When we are thinking, for example, of law and policy, what laws we should enact, how we should frame those laws. In other words, how should we word them? On what principles would we found them? On what uh, principles would we argue for them? We must keep in mind God's purpose to reconcile all things back to himself. So in the field of law, for example, it is not enough to stop a transgender procedure for a minor if in doing so we do nothing towards restoring the law and its foundations to being back under God and reconciling our legal system, which has departed from God, back to God. Otherwise, we're not really operating according to the law of faith that should be directed towards putting all things under this head and unifying them together such that medicine is not separate from law and law is separate from medicine, that the definition of health care is not separate from God's law, nor the law of man separate from the law of medicine and separate from God. You see, there's the problem, again, with the brief I mentioned by the pro-family organization that says there's growing scientific evidence that it's, it's harmful, sterilizing children is harmful. Well, no, it's not based upon scientific evidence. It's contrary to the nature of what we were created to be. 
Science is not independent of God. God defines what we are. He defines our essence, our nature, our being, you see. So the other day, I read this statement that was quite shocking by a very committed evangelical person in the Tennessee General Assembly touting the value of the law recently passed here in the state of Tennessee uh, about this transgender procedures for minors. And I, I, I was shocked by what he wrote. Listen to this. Tennessee's law protects children and families from this unscientific agenda. Now, I'll come back to that statement in just a minute, or I think I will, but let, let me go to the next one. This is the one that really just shocked me coming from a Christian. The activists who oppose our law accuse us of enforcing some religious dogma. Well, of course that's what you're doing. They have a religious dogma that says either there is no God or if there is a God, he is irrelevant to the matters of law and to health care and defines what health care is. Health care now encompasses sterilizing children, see, because we don't know what children are for. We don't know why we have reproductive capacities. So he says, but this isn't about religion. Oh, so there's something separate from religion. From the Christian's perspective, there's something separate from God. It's about reality. Oh, so reality is separate from God? Reality is separate from our religious dogma? D do you understand? This is heresy. Now, I'm not saying the guy's a heretic, but this is heresy. God created all things and in created them, gave them their nature or essence and their purpose, their telos, their end, what they were headed for. And he says, no, there's, this is a reality that's divorced from religious beliefs. Oh, my goodness. He then goes on and says, Atheists, agnostic people, and a diversity of people from all walks of life recognize the truth about gender. Well, they don't recognize the truth about gender in the way the Christian would recognize the truth about gender. They would reduce it down to just simply biology and say, well, if you have certain organs, then you're a male, and certain other organs, you're a female. And I would say that that, that is true, but it's not the essence of what a person is. We're made in the image of God. And the whole point of the transgender movement is that the stuff has no meaning, no essence, no purpose, no final end, so we have to give it meaning and purpose. So actually, the persons he refers to, the atheists and the agnostics, they don't have any basis upon which to say that gender cannot be separated from one's biology and gender be a social construct. Only the Christian can explain why they must stay together. So, so I would sit here and say to, to my friend, brother, this is not labor in the Lord and is in vain. I'm quoting here from 1 Corinthians chapter 15 where he says, Know that your labor that's in the Lord, meaning in the Lord, not just your work for the Lord, but in the Lord from whom all wisdom, knowledge, and communication of blessing and, and purposes towards his final end. This is, this is not doing any of that. You're not reconciling any of this back to God. The reason that he says this is an unscientific agenda is not because he is disputing that science can give us 
meaning or purpose. He's actually saying science is what tells us that we're men and women based strictly on biological matters. Now, if, if he had meant that science, that this is unscientific because science cannot tell us who we are or what our purpose is. Science can't give things a meaning. Science can't describe the purpose of things or their, or their telos or their end. Well, then he would be right. To think that science could do those things would be unscientific. Science can't do philosophy and theology. But that's not what he's saying. He's saying it's unscientific because science shows that certain internal organs go with this kind of person and other organs go with this other kind of person. So he's actually capitulating to science as the basis of knowing who we are. And the very problem is that science can't tell us anything but what we're made of and how it works. It can't give meaning. That's not an empirical thing. So you you see what I'm saying? We can do things that would appear to be righteous deeds, and Isaiah says your righteous deeds are rags because they're not according to to the signal purpose of God of reconciling all things back to him, including science, and our understanding of what it means to be human. It might look like we are doing some good. And it's not that God can't take that which we do and and ultimately still use it, but the way I'm hoping he's using it, is to provide opportunities for us to see how we're not doing it right. And from from doing it wrong and now seeing how we're not doing it right, we might repent and begin to labor in the Lord toward his purpose of bringing all things, including our understanding of law and science and healthcare and human beings, back to God. It's not enough to stop this procedure. Our righteousness cannot be defined in terms of the of the not doing bad, but in the doing of the good that is caught up in our love for God and carried up into our love for God and the law of God that comes from God. And and here we've just said this has nothing to do with God. It's about reality. I guess reality um, and and God just religion, well, they're two different things. You see the dualism of this poor brother. Well, let let me close today with something that I hope will encourage all of you. Again, I turn back to John Owen and to the scripture verse with which I began in Ephesians chapter 1. And he says this, There is no contemplation of the glory of Christ that ought more to affect the hearts of them that do believe with delight and joy than this, the recapitulation of all things in him. One view by faith 
Notice the importance of faith. Right now, it doesn't look like any of that is happening. But according to the word of God that endures forever, because it is founded before the foundations of the world, it is taking place. One view by faith of him, Christ, in the place of God as the supreme head of the whole creation. That, he says, thinking that that's what God is doing, thinking that that's what he's called us to himself and joined us to himself for and brought us into his kingdom for, and that's what we can be doing. He said, wow, that ought to fill you with delight and joy. Did we live more in contemplation of this glory of Christ and of the wisdom of God in this recapitulation of all things in him? There's not anything of our duty which it would not mind us of, nor anything of privilege which it would not give us a sense of, as might easily be demonstrated. In other words, what he's saying here, if we can keep our thoughts focused on what God is doing and what he's called us to be a part of and that it is going to succeed, remember last week I said, I think I said at the top of this podcast, we live in, a, in an evangelical atmosphere and climate of pessimism. Do our duty. Yes, just do our duty, but it's all going to fail. And, and when you think that you, you, you do anything outside of your own personal holiness um, is going to fail, well, then you become pietistic. The only thing you care about is your own personal holiness. And, and then you don't care about what goes on in law and government or in the world of economics or art. And, and then when those things begin to press in and crush on you, you don't have a theology to respond to them. So God's given us a great opportunity to say, hey, remember what I'm doing and labor in me towards my covenant purposes, and then your labor will not be in vain. And what Owen is saying is that when we think about that this is what God is working in us, for us to then work out, that should give us a great sense of the value of the duty that is ours, its importance and the gloriousness of it and the privilege of it. So next week, I want to pick up with this idea of covenants with respect to the United States Constitution and an issue taking place in the state of Iowa has the potential to affect all of us in regard to the matter of abortion. And I hope you'll join me next week for the next episode of God, Law, and Liberty. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. God, Law, and Liberty is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information, please visit us at www.facttennessee.org. That's F-A-C-Tennessee.org. And please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Fact Tennessee.